This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Back in September, we brought Britt Patterson Weber into the studio to talk about the upcoming season at Naples Botanical Garden. She's Vice President of Education and Interpretation and has worked at the garden for 13 years now. That show was set to air on Wednesday, September 28th, the day Hurricane Ian made landfall and the day we pushed all programming aside that wasn't directly focused on the storm and its aftermath. Now, Naples Botanical Garden is set to reopen next Tuesday, November 1st. The garden did receive some flooding, but it's 90 acres of undeveloped native habitat held much of the water which mitigated flooding in the cultivated gardens that guests enjoy. Their plans for the rest of the season remain in place, so today we're going to finally listen to the conversation I had with Britt about the garden's upcoming season. Let's hear that conversation now. Britt Patterson-Weber is Vice President of Education and Interpretation at Naples Botanical Garden. Britt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So for starters, just tell us a bit about yourself and your background. I read that you came to Southwest Florida for an internship and we got our claws into you and you never left. Yeah, that's true. It'll actually be 20 years in January that I came down for six months. And I came uh, right after I graduated from college at University of Montana, and I started working at a nature center in Fort Myers, Calusa Nature Center. And um, it was interesting. I was just there for six months doing the first grade field trips, and we opened a small butterfly enclosure while I was there. And that changed my whole trajectory. I was actually going back to out west for a graduate program in linguistics. And then I just got entranced by butterflies. And then that's what led to my love of plants. And so changed my plans, stayed here. I actually moved back to Montana after a few years. And it was snowing in June. I'm like, well, this is garbage. <laughs> and I moved back to southwest Florida. And that's basically where I've been. And I've been at the Botanical Garden for 13 years. Had you been into gardening and butterflies? prior to that? Or was that just like you started from scratch? Um, You know, not really my own. Um, We always had the garden at my house where everyone else in the neighborhood came to take their family photos in our garden. And so I come from a long line of gardeners. But, you know, when you're a kid, especially a teenager, you don't want to do what your mom's doing, you know. And um, but I'd always been around it. And for for me, butterflies were the window into the natural world that I needed uh, to, I think, enliven that love of plants that I was born with. Hmm. So describe the garden for our listeners who are completely unfamiliar with what's there. So Naples Botanical Garden is located in the south end of Naples. We have 170 acres. 90 acres of that is managed natural areas, and we have uh, over five or six different distinct ecosystems, um, natural Florida, wild Florida that's right there. Um, And that's beautiful. We have trails to walk through. We have great birding. But what is I think the real the jewel that attracts a lot of people to the garden, especially first-time visitors who may not be familiar with Florida, are our gorgeous designed gardens. And uh, we focus on plants of the tropics and subtropics. And so we have a Brazilian garden, Caribbean garden, Florida garden, Southeast Asian garden, and of course the orchid garden. That those are like the panda bears of the plant world. Everyone loves an orchid. Uh, So uh, people come down to see that. And we have different festivals and events throughout the year. But really, our goal is to connect people with plants. I was really, I mean, I knew it hadn't been around that long. It was, was, I guess you opened in 2009, about when you got there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I always guess I figured that it was some sort of like private garden collection that got transformed into what it is now. But I read up on it and it isn't. It It was a piece of land that was purchased and this was crafted into it, right? Exactly right. And that's something that I really love about our garden is that it started from scratch and it was really 
the plant enthusiasts in the community who rallied around it to get it going. And and there's also a freedom that comes with not having an historic estate to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, but a big part of our uh, beginnings is the garden started as a massive ecosystem restoration project. And so 2008, which is about a year and a half before the main garden opened in November 2009, we removed about 24 acres of melaleuca from our wetland. And so that's that invasive Australian tree you often see up and down I-75. So we restored the wetland there. And then by just removing, clearing the whole property of invasives and then planting this huge diversity of subtropical plants, we just create a lot of biodiversity that wasn't there before. Um, and that makes it really exciting um, to be a part of. So um, you kind of already alluded there's different ecosystems from different parts of the world. Is what's found there completely determined by latitude north and south, sort of like a band around the earth might be what's found there? Or is it a little bit broader than that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because that's definitely how the garden started was thinking about latitudes and Naples um, being at 26 degrees north of the equator. Um, for a time was the start of the subtropics and tropics, and that has changed hmm. um, as the tropics keep creeping further and further north. So, um, And we're able to grow more tropical plants now than we were 10, 12 years ago. So uh, we really want to be the best at what we're doing. So we're not going to try to force anything to grow there. So, for example, you're never going to find like an alpine garden um, at Naples Botanical Garden, but you'll certainly find the best of the tropics and subtropics. Hmm. So let's talk about the upcoming season. Mm-hmm. There's a theme. Is this the first time there's been a theme or, or explain sort of the origin of the theme? Yeah. So we started uh, theming our programming um, in 2020, 2021, which is m- maybe why some people might not be aware of it. Right, but right. Um, And we looked at our, our exhibit plan for the year and came up with a theme that we could overlay on all of our programming and would, we could use this theme as a lens through which to view our collection and share it with visitors. And so our first two themes focused on our exhibits. Uh, we had Steve Tobin's Root Sculpture. So we talked about roots and nature underground and the power of the unseen. Uh, this last year, we had uh, Patrick Doherty's Monumental Stickwork um, sculpture at the garden, and that is 30,000 pounds of willow that's all intertwined, and our theme is intertwined. So we talked about those connections in nature through our tours and uh, other programs. And this year is a unique theme, and this is going to be a big one for us because it's uh, a bit more cultural um, in focus. And our um, our theme this year is Mexico, a celebration of plants and culture. And it was really informed by our exhibits. And as they started to come together, we saw this theme of Mexico and the vibrancy of Mexico and uh, all the different relationships there are between you know, food and culture and plants and culture that we thought this would be a good way to uh, highlight that part of our collection and also give us an opportunity to engage with our community because we do have a significant um, uh, Mexican population, especially a significant Hispanic-born population here. So talk about how you start with a theme and then build into it and explain you you've mentioned exhibits a couple times mm-hmm. these are art exhibits this yes. is not just like you know plants that are artistic there are literal art exhibits built into this theme yes yes for sure so for the exhibits this year we start October 1st the very first one um, of the year is an outdoor sculpture exhibit uh, called La Calabera Katrina and is created by uh, Mexican artist Ricardo Soltero uh, he's based in LA and this is a 
traveling exhibit on loan from Denver Botanic Gardens. And it consists of these eight larger-than-life Katrina figures, and Katrina being uh, an icon associated with Dia de los Muertos, uh, Day of the Dead. And so he created them first paper mache, and they have um, fiberglass over them to protect them from the elements. Um, so that's something we have to consider. While we can show art in the garden, it's outside. Hmm. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> special uh, consideration. And so these will be displayed through our Scott Florida Garden. And there's another component, too, that he made of um, monarch butterflies that will all be in our cafe. And those are um, those are fully paper mache. They're huge, huge butterflies. And this one we thought tied in really well with the garden because each Katrina figure is painted with different uh, themes from Dia de los Muertos and Mexican culture. And so, for example, there is a a fruit vendor, a flower vendor. There is a Katrina that looks a lot like Frida Kahlo, which will be important in a moment. But and then another one that's uh, head to toe monarch butterflies. And, you know, that's a really great connection, I think, with – what we do and talk about at the garden, you know, plants and pollinators and monarch butterflies are a big part of the celebration of Day of the Dead. And so it's been said that the monarch butterflies, their migration, they wind up back in Mexico around November 1st and 2nd around Day of the Dead. And it's believed that the that's the souls of your deceased loved ones coming back to visit on the wings of the butterflies. And it's a good way, I think, to highlight how important plants are in our everyday lives that we really take it for granted, how intertwined they are with uh, our traditions and our beliefs and our customs. You think about Christmas and you've got Christmas trees and holly and the wreaths. Those are all come from plants and poinsettia, which actually is a big Christmas plant, but it also is from Mexico. Mm. <laughs> so there's so many different kinds of plants that are from Mexico, too, um, that with this theme, we can we can highlight those in our programming. So that's the first exhibit, and that'll be open. Before we get to yeah. the other exhibits, mm-hmm. um, do a lot of monarch butterflies spend time at the garden? Are you guys <laughs> set up for that? I know there's been some changes in their migration habits. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, I came here or got into this field because of butterflies, so you might want regret opening this well, door. No, that's why I opened the door. I want, <laughs> but, you, to, I want but, you to geek out um, on monarch butterflies. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> so what's really unique um, in South Florida is that we have non-migratory monarch butterflies that are here year-round. Um, and so that's really different than, say, the Northeast and the um, the Pacific Northwest, the Great Plains, where they have monarchs during uh, s- summer and early fall, and then they migrate south. There's no reason to migrate um, here in uh, South Florida. Oh, so they're year-round residents. So they stay here. Yeah, and it's interesting. They have um, – scientists have looked at their wing shape, and uh, they found that the, these butterflies that don't migrate, they have a different – slightly different shape um, than the monarchs that do, which makes sense. If you're going to fly 3,000 miles yeah. versus just hang out in your yard. Um, <laughs> so – but we have milkweed certainly at the garden, and uh, – there's around actually that Katrina exhibit. It's really fun. We get to work with our horticulture team planning the plantings around our outdoor exhibits. And so we're planting a lot of milkweed around that one figure um, that's covered in monarchs. So we uh, hope she'll be covered in live monarchs too. How far north do they go? I don't want to spend that much more time on it, but you just said the, the plains. I mean, the, how far north will monarchs go before they return to Mexico? So the the way that the migration works um, in late fall, summer, August or so, those caterpillars that are eating milkweed in the Great Plains in the northwest in southern Canada, um, something is chemically different in that milkweed. This is just the most recent science that I've read, and that triggers in them a delayed maturity. And so when the 
caterpillar goes into its chrysalis and it emerges um, and it starts its journey down to Mexico, it's not quite ready to mate yet. And that's why it's able to make that whole journey really focused, you know. And so it gets down to Mexico at the beginning of November and they spend a few months there. Uh, and it's around like it's around Valentine's Day sometimes that they start um, they start mating, they start reproducing. Um, depends on how the winter is, but it ends up being sometimes the I guess it would be like the grandchild of the original butterfly um, that makes its way back up to the original northern location. If you're just tuning in, we're listening to a conversation I had back in September with Britt Patterson-Weber. She's Vice President of Education and Interpretation at Naples Botanical Garden. This episode was scheduled to air on Wednesday, September 28th, but Hurricane Ian's arrival pushed it aside. The garden is reopening on Tuesday, November 1st, and the rest of their season plans do remain in place, so we're finally listening to this conversation today. If you would like to engage with the show, we invite you to find us on WGCU Social media. We're on Facebook and on Twitter. So uh, the Frida Kahlo, uh, talk about that. So in January, we open our biggest, most ambitious exhibit yet, and that is Frida and her garden. And that is a celebration of the plants um, that inspired Frida Kahlo, who's one of the most notable artists of the 20th century. Um, Frida Kahlo was born in Mexico City in um, her family compound, Casa Azul, and she died in that house, and her studio was in that house. And Casa Azul uh, is this bright, bright blue house. It's now the Frida Kahlo Museum, or Museo Frida Kahlo, and has really notable architecture in the courtyard gardens, and her studio overlooked the courtyard garden. And so what you'll see at Naples Botanical Garden is a recreation of sorts of Casa Azul. So the bright blue facade with the green trim and the red trim. You'll walk in through the door and wend your way through our gardens. And so we looked at the plant palette that's at Museo Frida Kahlo um, now, what's growing there now and what grew there historically. The plants that were in her artwork that featured really, plants really featured heavily in our artwork, especially her still lifes of uh, tropical fruits. And then even herself portraits. She often has a backdrop of tropical plants or has adorned herself with plants. Think of her flower crowns. Um, there's a really famous one where she's wearing a, a necklace of bougainvillea um, and mm. so it has a th- thorns on it and everything. Um, and then we can also highlight, too, the uh, of the plants of Mexico and the kitchen garden that she may have had, too. So you'll wend away through there, and there's bright blue walls with interpretation um, and photos of Frida in her garden. And uh, just explains a little bit more about how she drew inspiration from plants and how important they were to her. Um, before we get to the third exhibit, uh, the, the photography one, mm-hmm. um, what would be the kinds of plants – you've already mentioned a few, I think – but mm-hmm. that, that would we would take for granted as being part of the southwest Florida landscape that are Mexican in origin originally? Oh, boy. Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, there's so many. So, you know, Mexico was is really the, it's the cradle of the it's domestication of many of culinary plants we eat every day. So corn, beans, squash, tomatoes, cacao, which is where our chocolate comes from, vanilla, those were all first domesticated in Mexico. And so that's, you know, Mexican plants are certainly very much a part of our diet. There's also um, the plants we use, ornamental plants like dahlias, marigolds, poinsettia. Um, those are all from Mexico as well. And then you get further out into the wilds. And what I thought was really interesting when I was researching this theme was um, 
ecologically speaking, um, we have over, overlapping ecoregions with Mexico. So here in South Florida, we are considered a tropical wet forest. And if you look at a Mex- uh, map of Mexico, a lot of Mexico is too. And I think a lot of times we think of uh, desert and high Sierras when we think of Mexico, but it's a large country and it is um, incredibly biologically diverse. And so the Yucatan Peninsula is also tropical wet forest. Um, and at one point at the garden, we were talking about, you know, do you think we should have a Yucatan garden? And someone in horticulture very wisely said, we could, but it would look an awful lot like what you see out here. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, it would be what you see on exactly. the, the lots that haven't been cleared yet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A lot of yeah, a lot of tropical tree diversity in there. Hmm. So talk about the third exhibit then, the uh, 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 Viva La Vida? Yes, yeah, Viva La Vida, um, Plant Stories, Cultural Heritage, and that is by uh, local Naples photographer Lizette Morales McCabe. And I'm so excited about this one. And and, the, and I think her exhibit and the way it came to be was just a great um, example of how this year just kind of fell into place because we were planning these uh, the first two exhibits already. And we had been talking about we knew of her work. And then she came to us and, and shared with us a project she was working on. And so her exhibit at uh, Naples Botanical Garden will uh, tell the stories of 20 remarkable Hispanic um, women and uh, through her photos and then through the words of women themselves and their connections to plants. And uh, so she's been sending us her works already. So we get to see this this large-scale portrait photography that's really beautiful. Some of these women are in their own garden. Some are in our garden. Um, and some are at Cultivate Abundance in Immokalee. I think several of them were actually photographed there. And they've selected a plant that means something to them. So one woman, it's a very specific plant that her mother brought with her from um, from Central America, uh, a snake plant, also known as, unfortunately, mother-in-law's tongue. Um, and so she has this cutting um, that she can look to to remind her of where she came from. And then other plants, uh, like one woman, she focused on amaranth. And amaranth being the traditional grain, um, but food of the uh, Aztec warriors. And it means something to her long-term heritage, you know, having Aztec um, in her background. Um, and so each time I read one of these stories, I get to reflect on, I think, individual plants that mean something to me, you know, and like I have a plant at home I've been caring for from a loved one's funeral. And every time I see that plant, I I water it, I take care of it, and I'm reminded of that person. And, and that's just, I think a lot of us have those kind of stories. And so when you read them, you get to reflect in that way. What kind of plant is it? It's an orange dendrobium orchid. <laughs> and I flew it back from South Dakota seven years ago, and it's still alive. <laughs> hmm. um, and then you guys are having a, a festival, a Dia de, a Dia de los Muertos. Muertos yeah, festival. Yeah, really excited about that. Um, is that's... festivaling something that's normally, you know, on your uh, agenda? You know, we've always had, um, you know, big flower shows and things like that. This year, um, we had to sit back and realize, well, like, whoa, we added four festivals to our schedule this year. Um, But we see that it brings out people who may may have never been to the garden before. It's a great way to introduce them to plants in a really fun and being, you know, an educator, really fun and sneaky way. So you don't know that you're learning, but you certainly are. Um, And so Dia de los Muertos, that will be November 5th and 6th at the garden. And uh, it's really for uh, geared toward families. And we'll have music and art activities 
Um, the artist who created the Katrinas, Ricardo Soltero, he'll be on hand doing some real live art making um, with the public on that Saturday. And that Saturday will also be open uh, for extended hours to view the Katrinas around sunset. So we don't have a lot of opportunities at the garden um, to experience sunset. It's nice. It's something a little bit different than going to the beach for sunset. And the artist who made the Katrinas is kind of a big deal in the world of those festivals because of the one he works with out in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. He's the designer for the Hollywood um, Forever Cemetery Dia de los Muertos celebration, which is the biggest Dia de los Muertos celebration in the United States. And so his background is in theatrical design, set design, costume design, and uh, really thinks in 3D art, you know, which is very fun. So he creates huge Katrinas. He's done Katrinas, small ones, and then um, I think over 20-some feet was his biggest one that he's done. You know, he has a funny story about watching um, the movie, the Pixar movie Coco, mm-hmm. and, uh, and which is about – the celebration of Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, and really enjoyed the movie until he saw a piece he recognized uh, in the celebration was something that he had designed for the for Hollywood Forever, and it wasn't part of the Dia de los Muertos like history. It was something that he had created on his own, his original work. He's like, I can't believe they stole my artwork. But then at the end of the movie, he saw in the credits that they that they thanked Hollywood Forever Cemetery so for there inspiration. You go. They did so, their due yeah, diligence yeah. on uh, assigning uh, yes. rights or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's. Fantastic. Um, So this is all part of, or at least in conjunction with, Collier County's Arts Viva. It's um, something they're doing. Yeah, Arte Viva. It's you know how sometimes there's a word for it when I think independently people start coming up with the similar ideas around the same time, and that was sort of what was happening with our plans around um, our year of Mexico and celebrating Mexico, and some of the other arts organizations in Collier County were planning their own kind of Hispanic celebrations. And we were all lucky enough to come together and work with the county and um, who's supporting Arte Viva, which is a um, celebration of Hispanic arts and culture for the whole year. Um, So there's a whole long schedule of activities from Naples Opera and Gulf Shore Playhouse um, and many of the other institutions in our area. Hmm. Uh, Before we let you go, are you an active gardener on your own time or do you get all the fix you need from work? (laughs) I um, So I live in a condo, but I do have a lanai. I get like a, a hair of uh, eastern uh, exposure. Um, and so I grow a lot of tropical houseplants on my lanai. My uh, favorite thing to grow are Hoyas. Although I've only had one bloom for me. I know I'm doing something wrong, which is always embarrassing when you work at a botanical garden. But um, And last question or last uh, opportunity for comments. Explain to people why you think it's important to spend time in a garden or cultivating something, you know, just as a human being. Boy, that's a great question. Uh, I think it takes you outside of yourself for a little bit. I think it's important to um, to nourish something, to nurture something um, on your own, especially something that gives you so much back in return. Um, without plants, there is no life. And on the entire planet. And and I think we definitely um, take that for granted. And so it's something, it's the least that we can do, I think. Um, but And then it just brings joy and relaxation. So... 
Everyone should have a garden. All right. Well, thanks to our guest, Britt Patterson-Weber is Vice President of Education and Interpretation at Naples Botanical Garden. Britt, thank you for coming in and sharing this with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This conversation was recorded back in September before Hurricane Ian swept across southwest Florida. While the garden did receive some storm damage, they are set to officially reopen next Tuesday, November 1st, and their plans for the rest of the season remain in place. You can find a link to learn more about the garden's season plans on our website, www gcu.org slash gcl. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear our episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our show director is Richard Chenqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.